I'm Kim Cutable, an author, producer, and entrepreneur. Voice Lessons is a podcast about women's lives, what, why, and how they create, and the way that they lead. Hi, I'm Deborah Almer, and this is a lesson on the intimacy of poetry. What was your earliest memory of being creative? Drawing pictures, you know, with crayons, something like that. I I do remember actually, actually my parents uh, divorced when I was quite young. And I remember my dad was always going to decorate my bedroom. He never, he never did it. And when he left the family household, I remember thinking, actually, I can do this myself. So I remember Mm -hmm. painting it grey and then white clouds. And that was a kind of strong kind of moment of independence and creativity. Mm, I love that. Thank you. So you started your business as an emergency poet. Yeah, about eight years ago, I suddenly, well, it it kind of looked like it came out of the blue. But yeah, I I suddenly bought a vintage ambulance on eBay um, (laughs) (laughs) with all of of my friends saying, no, Deb, don't do it. And it it wasn't an idea to have a business, particularly. It was a piece of art, I suppose, you know, a kind of creative idea to, to go and do poetry on prescriptions. So yeah, that was a, a moment of madness, I think. I look at books as being prescriptive, but when I came across you and the idea that you give poems as prescriptions, I thought, of course, of course this makes sense. So tell me what you did in terms of like you just took this ambulance out and you went to different neighborhoods. How did it start and and how did it become popular? I was a volunteer for a local poetry festival and I bought the ambulance thinking I would do it there and maybe, uh, you know, a couple of other places. But I don't just drive around <laughs> kind of with random encounters. I wait till I'm invited somewhere. So that first event was was successful. People, the, the media were a little bit interested in it. So I was then invited to a, a four-day event for the Poetry Parnassus, which was the in the year of the Olympics. And I was on the South Bank in London, right on the Thames for four days. And then it was on the radio. Then three more people invited me to literary festivals or libraries or schools. And then there was a book. And it, 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 it meant in the end that it I could give up my day job. And my children were so embarrassed. <laughs> kind of, mum, why can't you do a normal job? <laughs> Please don't park the ambulance outside. <laughs> <laughs> so when and why did it progress to a shop? We'd been kind of aware of, of this shop being for sale for a few years on and off and it's got all the original iron monger shelves sort of mid-victorian shelves i was peering through the dusty windows at these shelves and a mahogany counter and an old till and it i it was a bit like the emergency poet thing i just had this kind of flash of inspiration it's a shop but it's also a coffee shop where we have boiling flasks that look like chemist lab flasks and there's a performance space there's a consultation room so it's more than just the shop the flash of the inspiration is that the same place where the poems come from for you 
Yeah, it's the kind of free, almost childlike, playful part of me that that hasn't died. You know, I I just indulge it all the time. <laughs> so it's uh, yeah, it's the same place I think. Apart from some poems come when you're, you're you're in pain, actually. So so maybe not quite the same, but maybe the hurt child. So you say you're indulging this place is it a different voice than your normal voice we talk this this show is about using your voice so I'm curious what she is she another character or is she you represents for you she's definitely me I'm very much in touch with her yeah it's interesting that I call her something else you know there's (laughs) there's a we all have that kind of performed self I have it less than most people, you know, I'm quite out there being eccentric, I suppose. I look quite sane, but, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, the poetry is an intimate, dreamlike place and a bit more of a melancholy place. The poetry pharmacy, the ambulance are, are, are just playful. I love what you say. I think the combination of being carefully listened to, being taken to ideals places through the consultation, putting your feet up on the chaise lounge, and then having a hand-picked poem is always a winning combination. So how did you come to this prescriptive method? It came out of working for years with people with dementia, I think. I went into care homes sat alongside somebody and listened, just talked to them about the seaside or a picnic or flying a kite and sat with them and was properly in the present. I realised how sharing a poem could take them in their heads to somewhere positive. I learned that people like being listened to really carefully. I learned that people like you to ask unexpected questions that, you know, that make them think. I, they like to talk about themselves. And, yeah, I, I, think, I think it was mainly that. But also, you know, I remember having a friend at the kitchen table with a broken heart and me going off to find a poem that could help her, you know, a wise poem that, that was, was one that I sort of clung to when I was in the similar situation. So it, it came... Yeah, it it came from from a few different places, but but mainly a, about the, finding the right poem for the right person. You know, that's the skill if there is one. And how do you know how to do that? How do you develop? That's obviously knowing a lot of poems, but curious. How do you know? Is it intuitive? Is it a what is it? I've become really good at it because I do so many. I would say it's a combination of listening carefully empathy and intuition but you just learn to pick up kind of clues about a person I think it must have been what like gypsy fortune tellers must have done you know that kind of picking up those little subtle things where someone can't you can see the doubt in their eyes you know and then you move away from that but I ask questions about their reading habits you know what books they read as a child what books they're into now so I get a sense of their kind of aesthetic tastes as well I'm very much in charge of it as well you know I sit there in my doctor's coat with a clipboard I you know there's a process this question and then this question so that they don't go off into unsafe territory it's always about them it's always about positive parts of themselves and then I you know I it kind of comes to a resolution and at that point I ask them 
what they'd like a poem for, you know, whether it's work stress or anxiety or they're bullied at work or whatever it is. And that, uh, it's right at the end. So we don't dwell on the thing too much. The poem should answer that. Do you feel in this time that poetry is more important than ever? People keep getting in touch with me and asking me to prescribe them poetry for, for these odd times. And I think the thing that poetry can do best is to try and explain the unexplainable, to try and make sense of the world. And, and maybe in the absence of religion for a lot of people, it's a connection to the, the spiritual part of themselves. Three quarters of the way into my name, there's Roshan, Roshni, light. That seems to me right. A silver of bangles on a wrist, round mirror chips embroidered into the hem of my clothes. My white skin seen tiny times over, sequins sewn into my childhood. This is my light. A cloth weighted with five bright beads over an English lamp. And me now, turning on these lights in the dusk, move still with a shake of bells at my feet, not quite heard, the light not quite seen. You have your own collection, yeah. I saw, which is called Dirty Laundry. You also spent some time collaborating and being the editor for anthologies of other people's yeah. work. What made you finally decide to do your own full collection and what was that process like? I've written poetry all my life. I've, you know, even I've been reading it, but um, all, always writing it. I did an MA in creative writing and, and it forced me to share my work. I'd been quite shy of sharing my own work. And I think if you read a lot and it's good quality work, you, you're never quite that good. So I'm a harsh critic of my own work. So, but my MA made me get it out there. Having a collection published was just such a dream. You know, when I was seven, I wanted to be a writer and now I have a book with my name on it, you know, with my own words. And I say to my show, look, I made this up. You know, <laughs> someone published awesome. it. Awesome. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. yeah. What was the hardest thing about it? Taking myself seriously as a writer, calling myself a poet. My, my background, you know, I'm a mixed race girl from a council estate. I don't know if you have those, you know, kind of a rough, kind of poor Are you area. Mixed? Mixed race, yeah, yeah. I, I am too. I don't look it, do I? Are you? Do no, you. Yeah, I do look more. I'm wearing my hair yeah, curly yeah. right now. When it's great, you yeah, you wouldn't it, notice as well, but you are as well. Ah, love yeah, that. Yeah, my mum's from Northern India, and my dad's oh, um, from, love from that. Britain. Yeah. Did that inform your work at all? Yeah, that runs through it quite a lot. The thing about being mixed race, mixed class, I live on the borders between England and Wales, and I ho I love that kind of thing of of borderlands and being sort of outside of the the normal, I suppose. You know, there's a visibility thing mm -hmm. that comes with being mixed and being able to, I think, travel in both worlds, which makes you unpopular in yeah. a group, right? Yeah. Depending on who, what group you're in. Did Do you think that 
ties into your writing invisibility at all? Like this in this fear to reveal yourself fully? Yeah, what one of the poems is a sort of touches that about how um, you know, I look, I'm a white woman, I sound like a middle class white woman and actually I'm I'm from I'm working class background and and I'm mixed race, you know, my Indian part of me is very strong. And it's mm. it really is invisible, and people make all sorts of assumptions about you. you. You know, I can sound and look privileged, and I'm not at all. And I quite, but I quite like that. I like it gives me access. It, it gives you access, but it also does make some things difficult. So when I was growing up, you know, as a young woman in school in the 70s and 80s, there's a lot more racism around. And when you're white and you don't look mixed race you hear it more you have to challenge it actually more I, I was chat my brother is very is dark he looks Asian my mum's Asian and when I was little I didn't we didn't I didn't notice they were just who they were you know I didn't have any sense of them being any different and then when you encounter racism people were were in more confident of saying things in front of me than they would have done in front of them, which meant that I was living with challenging racism somehow and quite often more than they were, which was quite strange. Yeah, no, I totally relate to that. I totally yeah. relate to that because you find yourself in groups of people who you think are friends and then they say something that's very revealing and you cannot no. you cannot not challenge it. No. And then also I find on the other side to sometimes be held mm -hmm. accountable or to be treated poorly when in fact I am actually in defense so many times. For me, because it's not seen as well, it's part of me that's really important and that I love and I'm not in touch with it. It's not addressed most of the time. So it was really nice to be able to write about it. Actually, you know, to to bring the um, there's a line in one of the poems, the the shake of bells at my feet. You know, kind of um, when I was little, we used to put bells around our ankles, my mum and me, and and my sister, and we dance. You know, Indian dancing, and I grew up with the films, and it goes right through me. But it's you know, it's not seen. Tell me, I guess the journey from being a poet, an artist, a writer, to being businesswoman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what that – and and honestly, I love this idea because I feel it so beautifully encompasses what creative people are capable of creating in terms of a business. It is not a quintessential business, but is a business that has impact and has the ability to reach and to serve and transform in a way that is not obvious. No, no. But that's a big challenge, you know, because I'm making it up as I go along. That's the joy of it, you know, the fun of it, the, the freedom. I can write things, a poem on a wall. I can have 
I can do what I like. I'm, I'm you know, I'm very fortunate. There's no, there's no money, but you know, I, I can. I have lots of friends, lots of support, and it's been a kind of collaborative project, which has been wonderful. The business side of it, I think I'm okay at. Um, it does have impact. To try and make it make me a living is another thing, you know. So I'm good at, at having ideas, good at encouraging people to good good at involving people whether or not I'm a ruthless <laughs> businesswoman is another thing you know I don't know if ruthless and business women have to be synonymous. I think no, there's no, a, no, no. they don't. I do believe there's a way, and I, I'm seeing this in so many models of especially digital and and I know what the work you're doing is personal. But there is there is a model for reaching a lot of people with a low price point and actually getting where you need to. Yeah. It it I think again, it's it would be strategizing around the different elements of your business because it is so unique and so pressworthy. What's the hardest part of running a business? You know, I'm really rubbish at all the kind of invoices and, and um, I'm good with the detail if it interests me. You know, I used to give them away, but now I've made <laughs> bottles of pills with the different ailments with little wrapped up extracts of poems inside them. So, you know, I make those. We have poems for hope and anxiety and courage and all sorts of things, empty nest syndrome. Yeah, I, I enjoyed designing the labels and finding poems. You need to put those online. You need to put those little bottles. Yeah, they are. We've got, we've, got, we've got a website. I. It's mainly in the UK at the moment. Some people from the States have got in touch and said, will you send them? So sometimes, uh, you know, I do. But, you do. But it's mainly, you know, it's mainly me. I've got my son here living at home and he's helping me at the moment before he goes off and does something else. But yeah, I, I'm... I'm spreading myself too thinly. I have too many ideas. So that's probably my biggest challenge. Do you think there's such a thing as feminine leadership? I think there's something that women do that's very different. Maybe it's more about working together, worrying about how people feel when they work with you. They work with you and not for you, you know, that kind of collegiate way of doing things. You know, I talked about ruthless before. I can be a bit of a softy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't particularly, you know, I want to give things away all the time. So, uh, yeah. That's that's your inner creative. That's super common among creative business owners because your work is to heal and to serve. So there's a boundary there. You feel like, well, I just want you to get better. Yeah, just have it. Have it. Right? <laughs> just have it. <laughs> Forgetting that you are, in fact, that this, you know, you're not a martyr and you're not, you know, a nun. And so this is, <laughs> this is the means by which the source has allowed you to make your living, right? It is something very common that I work on with clients. If I was to ask you, my wish for every other woman is? The thing I first thought of was, do you know, have you come across that novel by, oh, what's her name, Naomi Alderman, called The Power? Every woman has this kind of ability to shoot electricity out of their hands. 
making making them more physically powerful than men so that so this is a bit of a joke answer but but maybe <laughs> <laughs> so that that women are no longer vulnerable or frightened you have all of the answers when you ask the right questions be visible speak your truth every other woman needs you to lead. Voice Lessons is produced, written, and spoken by me, Kim Cutable. It's also produced and edited by Sergio Miranda and associate produced by Jessica Manalga. Our music was created by singer-songwriter Claire Hamill. You can find out when we post new episodes when you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. And if you liked what you've heard, we would love it if you leave us a review. You can join our community at Facebook forward slash Voice Lessons Podcast to speak with me live after every episode is posted. And if you have a question or comment or want to suggest a guest, you can do it there. Or if you're on Instagram, tag us at Voice Lessons Podcast and use the hashtag LessonUp. For other inspiration, updates, and show notes, subscribe at VoiceLessonsPodcast.com. <laughs>